0: Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. If you happen to be joining us today, we're in the fourth part of a series called The People of God, and we're tackling some things, some issues. Culturally and politically, we've never done as a church before, and uh, it's been quite a journey to say the least, and um, we're asking God to try to tell us how to live in this culture, and we're looking at First Peter to help us learn how to do it. It was written to Christians who lived in a society that was anti-God. And so Peter's trying to tell them sort of what we learned in chapter one here earlier at communion that you have a different identity, have a different heritage. Uh, you don't have to depend on society, a nation, a country, or anything to give you your identity. You have it in Christ. And then Peter goes on to say once you grab that you're in exile and you're not at home anywhere and you're not getting your ultimate hope meaning or identity from anything other than me, then, only then, can you engage that culture properly. Can you engage it in a way um, that I want you to, that keeps my mission as the focus. So we're using 1 Peter to sort of develop a theology of identity in Christ as a church, and a theology of engagement to society. So I've been arguing essentially just to bring you up to speed that uh, to a a large degree it seems like politics and nationalism have have started shaping Christianity um, a little more than our spiritual identity is, which is what Peter's addressing. Our identity is God's people. And uh, as America becomes less and less... Supportive of what we're doing. We're trying to figure out who we are and recognize that we're the only ones as the church that can claim special favor. No nation can claim special favor. Only God's people. First Peter 2. He's speaking to the church. You're the chosen race. You're the royal priesthood. And you're the holy nation the people of God. That's your identity. You can lose everything else and still have an identity, the ultimate identity. So, in America, it seems as if we've blended a little bit our understanding of what Christianity is and nationalism to a degree that, uh, and by the way we're interacting with politics today, seems that we've entangled them in such a way that we can't untangle them, and we can't separate our spiritual identity from our national one. And it's forcing us to act in ways that are more like culture than like the church is supposed to act. Because we're sort of this, in this desperate mode of thinking that if we lose America, We lose Christianity. And of course, Peter's point is that's not the case. Christianity can thrive in any culture, any nation. So, um, if you watch the second debate, you could tell, you could see it, you could feel it, that even though the civility was higher, the hatred, and the demeaning were all very clear. Politics, at least the way they are today, creates that kind of environment. We cannot join that as believers. We can't be angry, we can't be hostile, we can't have disdain, we can't have contempt. We can't create enemies out of the people God wants us to reach. So, however, you handle your politics, you have to do it with a larger mission in mind. And Peter will say in chapter 3, in verse 15 and 16, remember? What he says in this text. Um, but set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give an answer. Okay, there's your, there's your verbal witness. But Peter is a kind of vague. He says, just speak about the hope in you. Now, we can tease that out. It's clearly Christ and what he's done for us. But, but how to communicate that message in every setting, he's not specific on in this text. But let me tell you what he, will, what he is specific on. He's less specific on what to say and very specific on how to say it. Do it with courtesy, respect. Keep a good conscience so that if anybody slanders you, they have have nothing against you by the way you've treated them or what you've said to them when they accuse you. That is Peter's focus. I'm concerned about how you are in the society. Because it seems like sometimes our mission is to moralize a nation more than it is to proclaim the gospel. And that's essentially where Jonah was at. He despised the people of Nineveh for their immorality. They were the worst enemies to Israel, the Assyrians. And they were evil. They were they were such brutal people that Jonah couldn't contemplate how God could have anything to do with them. It would be like the best illus- the, the best feeling I can give you is to say Isis then you have a sum of what the Assyrians were like. And so God's heart is to save those people. (laughs) And if you read the book of Jonah, you see this incredible nation, and God knows every single one of them, all All 120,000 persons are right there about, and how many cattle they have, everything about them. And what you learn real quick as you read the story is it's not the Ninevites that are a problem to God. It's Jonah. Jonah's the biggest problem. When we read the book, we a lot of times think that Jonah's bigger. Jonah, the whale is the problem in the book. The whale is not the problem in the book. Jonah's the problem in the book. And God has to move heaven and earth to bring Jonah around. The wind obeys him, the sun obeys him, the plant obeys him, the worm obeys him, the sea obeys him. The sinners obey him. We don't know if Jonah's gonna. Jonah is God's biggest problem in the story. Nineveh repents, we don't even know how, the, how Jonah ends. What well, we kind of do, this is a New Testament story, it's a different story, but you're left hanging. So let me just say something out of that. Jonah's moral superiority was a bigger problem for God than Nineveh's moral depravity. Chew on that for a second. Sometimes the good guy is the odd man out. Because all he can think about is the moral issue. And when you do that, you ostracize, you create enemies. Peter wants us to be able to do that in a way, as we've said, that's offensive but attractive. Now, how do you fit that mission into America and government politic that we've been talking about? Because uh, we have say in America. We're blessed with the right and responsibility to care for people and value people. But how I use that right is determined ultimately by my spiritual identity, my relationship to God and the mission he has given me. That is my ultimate politic. So I cannot ever forget my identity and my mission as a believer, even as I live in America under the system it operates in. Now this distinction is incredibly important. I'm trying to drive the wedge between my identity as American and my identity as a Christian just far enough so that you can stand back and say, okay, how do I relate to America instead of the blending of them? Because I think that gets us in a little trouble. Peter's message at the end of the day is... If you lose all your rights in society, you still have a Christian identity and a responsibility to live it out. What you're called to be in Christ works in all contexts and all cultures. Sometimes our rights and our comforts matter more than souls. That's just the truth. I'm going to tell you, I have come to the conclusion America is as much an idol in my life or has been and I didn't even realize it. And I still will probably spend the rest of my life figuring out how it is, one, how is, it, it is an idol in my life. So, let me say, You can be an American as a Christian. But you're a Christian first. That's important. Because you don't stop being American because you're Christian. Any more than you stop being your race or your your, your color or, or your gender. You don't stop being those things. It's just that Christ comes in and changes the way you look at all those things. And they're no longer the primary thing that drives you. They're no longer the thing that that is ultimate for you. And so whether I'm a man or whether I'm whatever color I am or or whatever nationality I am, I can be that. If I live in Russia, I can live like a Christian in Russia and do what Russians do. If I'm in India, I do the same thing. When I go and visit those countries, I I I I try my best to fit into that to what they're doing and eat what they eat, try to uh, say words that matter to them. Do things that are important to them. Because that does, my Christianity is not on the line in that. I can be Christian anywhere. But you can be Christian in America too. You can live in this country with all the things that you have and be Christian. Now, I'm, that means voting is a part of what Americans do And you have the responsibility and the right that other countries wish they had in order to have a say in culture. You get to have a say in culture. That's a great thing. Um, There was a time in my life when, early after I gave my life to Christ, I didn't vote. And part of the reason was I didn't even think about politics. I was never brought up in a political home, political environment. I gave my life to Christ. I just started thinking about spiritual things. and Voting in politics and who's the president never even... Crossed my mind Is an issue And so uh, But as I started to grow And I started to realize Oh wait a minute Started to learn things And figure some things out Then I thought Wow this is This is a great opportunity We have I didn't I don't I didn't understand The privilege of that And so um, Now It's very possible That you're tempted Even though you do know Those things To say I'm not going to vote Because I'm so sick of it all And I get that You're just sick of it all. We're all sick of it all. But that's going the other way. And here's the reason I vote now. I don't vote because it's my right. And I don't vote because it's an American responsibility. I vote because I want to make sure my heart keeps a compassionate temperature for everything and everybody that God loves in the world. If you say, I hate all of it, they make me so angry, interpreted, I'm so much better than them. I'll step back and just let my heart get hard and cold. No, you vote, you step in there, and you step in there with a heart that says, God, I don't know how this is going to work. I have a small part, but I know you're in charge of the whole thing. All I know is I care about people, and I'm voting in the way that cares for people. That's why I vote. Otherwise, if I didn't, I could curl up in a ball and become like a, like a, like a lie ball. You know what a high lie ball is? Or maybe there's a better illustration of a, of a little hard, so, some other sport that I don't know. Uh, I don't want to be that. And it's easy to be that. So you're American, be American. That's what Americans do. That's what they get to do. You can be Christian and American and vote. So, even though you're ultimately governed by a spiritual politic, I think you should care about what happens in the world and in the society. But because you're a Christian, your Christianity dictates your life. Not what America says. It's your primary identity. Identity. So I am free to do things as an American uh, that I'm not free to do as a Christian. Do you understand that? You have rights here in this country you can have, but they're not a right God necessarily wants you to have. So God's ultimately dictating what my rights are. In heaven... This is what I'm trying to say about you being an American and a Christian. I don't want you to, to lose that identity uh, because it's part of your world. It's part of who you are. It's okay. Because um, we've said a lot of things that make you wonder if I care about that, and I do. Um, in heaven, we're not losing our nationality. Do you know that? You're not going to lose your color. I bet you don't lose your language. I bet you don't lose, uh, and you're not you're losing your, na- your national identity. Once heaven and earth merge, all the nations are going to come around from all over the place. That means there's a whole society and universe operating, worlds, countries. And what will unify us in that awesome diversity is the unifying power of Jesus Christ. It will be the single thing we put our identity in. We will all function as nations, look different, maybe sound different, maybe live differently but all unified in Christ and none of that stuff will be used to make anybody else feel less than. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's Revelation. You can read it yourself. But because God loves all nations and because he loves all people, even godless ones, my nationalism has a limit. I have to love things America might not. I have to love people America might not. And so I have to be careful about how far I take my national pride. It can only go so far because I have something that overrides that. Doesn't mean I can't have it. It's just not the ultimate thing. So I can't let it create a division that keeps me from being able To share Christ with people. That has to be my goal. In any undertaking, not just political, but in political, it's it's very easy. Because politics divides. It does this. It does Jonah and Nineveh. God's trying to figure out how to bring the two of them together. And politics makes it extremely difficult. So we have to be, we have to be incredibly more, more sensitive in this arena than in others. And that's why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 9, hey, when I'm with the Jews, I'm a Jew. When I'm with the Gentiles, I'm a Gentile. When I'm with people who know the law, I act like I know the law. When people that don't know the law, I give them that grace. When I'm with people who are weak and, and do things I wouldn't do or uh, don't do things I would do, I can hang, I can handle it. I, I, in other words, no, not even my nationality wins or supersedes or superintends over my goal, Paul says. What does he say in 1 Corinthians 9? This is a great text. See, even though I'm free, I've made myself a servant to everyone. That's my identity. Why? That I might win more of them. The goal of that, let's see if I go here. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save. I have become all things to all people. So on the one hand, you got to look at a group of people you despise over there. And you got to write about them on Facebook, and you got to throw them under the bus this way, and you got to throw them under the bus that way, and you got to throw them under that bus. And then you got to go, oh, but Jesus loves you. I'm like, are you kidding me? That doesn't work. Paul says, I've got a greater goal in my mind. And by the way, the next section, which I don't have time to go into, but you can read it yourself, where it says, run the race. That whole run the race is this theme right here. My job is to run a race. What's the race, Paul? The race is to win people to Christ. Comes right after this text. And I'll do anything. I'll I'll set aside anything. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, I won't even eat certain things if it offends you in a way that I can't connect with you. That's the heart that Paul has. So I'm arguing that we as Christians can't lose sight of that mission even in political efforts, which is very easy to do. That's what the series is about. It's not a simple thing I'm arguing here. I understand. And it seems that protecting freedoms sometimes and moralizing society is more important than the mission of saving souls. And you gotta be like a like, you got to have the Jesus would say, Well, the gentle is a dove and wise is a serpent in order to do that. And if you don't do it, if, you, if, you, if you're more hell bent on moralizing America. Then then you that will manifest itself in some very unhealthy ways as it has. Our, we've talked about them for three weeks. I won't go into all of them, but there's a style of interaction that we can't do anymore. We don't we're intolerant. We do, we, we throw people over, we create enemies. I'll never talk to you. I hate their guts. I'm not looking at that again. I ain't watching that. I ain't doing this. We just cancel culture everything. Just like they're doing. Just like society's doing. Well, how can you cancel culture? That's what Jonah tried to do. And reach him. And then we become emotionally and psychologically fragile. Oh, my gosh, if this is if he becomes the president, yeah, if this happens, oh, my, and that happens, we're just wilting. Where's our hope? Peter says, you have hope. You have hope if you lost everything, you have hope. So that's how it manifests itself, and it manifests itself further in something that I mentioned last week that I told you I would address, and so now I'm going to address that. So if, you're, uh, if you weren't here last week, just hold on for that ride. Because I think it manifests itself in the remarks of two pretty prominent pastors where one of them has said, a real Christian will vote for Trump. By that he means he's not necessarily in support of Trump, but Trump represents the red and the red represents Republican and the Republican supports his policies. So a real Christian will vote for Trump. The uh, other local pastor said, if you uh, vote for Biden, just the same thing, just said it the opposite way. If you vote for Biden, you've sold your soul to the devil. I read those things, you know, and right now I'm steeped into this stuff. And when I read those, I thought, there it is. There's exactly it. We have taken Christianity and somehow merged it with politics so that we can't distinguish these. And I think crossed a biblical and theological line with those comments. And I want to argue for you right now why I think that's true. Both guys are making statements based on one, two significant moral issues. In society, And I want to make it clear I'm in agreement with them On the moral issues I have no problem We've taught about all of those issues In this church It's not an issue Biblically that's where I stand too I'm with them on their moral stances um, And I believe Christians should vote their values I don't think you should do anything in your life Without your Christian values Impacting you including vote What I take issue with is to tell someone they're not a Christian if they don't vote a certain way. Or that they're of the devil if they vote a certain way. And just so you know, there's a lot of people on the blue side who look at the people on the red side and go, you call yourself a Christian? With some of the crap going on on that side? Come on, both sides can have accusations. And there's a, a, a growing group of prominent evangelicals in society who have the same values that these preachers have, that you have, but are voting blue. And they've come out and said it. I'm not judging that for a second. So, where this goes wrong is the idea. In the suggestion that God is fully support, uh, supportive of one political party, I don't think you can say that. So you have who we are as believers. Then you got these two, this political structure and system that operates here in America, especially, I'm just focused on that. The problem is, is that not all positions. Um, Not all the positions or the beliefs on either side of these or the application of the policies you might be voting for are the way God would do it. No one side can claim everything we do in this box is the way God would do it. No side is without evil and you're going to vote for one you have to vote for one you've got to make a choice because you got really two options the third one I mean only in rare circumstances does it make a difference so you're going to have to make a choice but you can't have it all which is why I don't believe you. I can tell you which side to vote for from here from this platform one of the pastors in the discussion where he claimed you're not a real christian if you don't vote for trump said this i'm voting for the one that is closer to scripture that's a fine argument if you want to use it but it admits none of them are fully comprehensive comprehensively scriptural And so the argument of Romans 1 is brought in where all the sin is depicted. And so, you know, you're saying, I don't, I don't want these, these, really these high-level sins. And so one of the moral issues has to do with homosexuality, which Romans 1 sort of, um, well, it highlights to some degree. It's by far not the only thing in there. And what you have in Romans 1 is this, this incredible picture of, a, of people who've abandoned God and what happens to them morally. They just, they just decline. They go south. They worship things that are not worth worshiping and pretty soon they can't tell the difference. Uh, they're Their right hand from their left morally. And, and it just keeps going from there. And then there are like these three layers of God saying, can't deal with that. I, I can't deal with it. Once you've done this, I gotta give you over to that. This is what happens when you, when you lose me. And then there's another level. This is what happens when you lose me. And that middle one is the homosexuality one. That's, a, that's, that's the second one. And then there's a whole third one. And I've always pictured it as kind of a waterfall. This is once you abandon God, you just kind of go over the cliff, hard water, and then you kind of land in a puddle, which is, is this third group of people. And you, have you read what that group of people sounds like in this text in Romans one? This third group, God gave over. This is the third giveover. This is like the third level. This is like bottom shelf. They get depraved minds. They're filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, malice. They're rife with envy, murder, strife, deceit, hostility. They're gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, contrivers of all sorts of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, covenant breakers, heartless, ruthless. That's everybody in this room, I think. That's everybody on blue or red. It's—it's. It's, these are all violations against God and his character. And he, and he gives them all over. He doesn't just give one group over gives them all over. this three giveovers. So Romans 1 is not a political statement. It's a theological statement. It's an anthropological statement. It describes all of humanity. And by the time you get to chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul says there's none righteous, not anywhere you look, And then the answer to the problem can only be one thing. Not switch sides. Not vote a color. Christ has to die to save your behind. It's his death. It's not a political position. And so, to say that you can't be a Christian and And vote one of the colors. It's dangerously close. Too, too close for me to saying something like, "Put your trust in Christ and vote red, and I'll see you in heaven." And I can't do it. It's too close to that for me. I'm going to say something to you. Listen. The only time that I'm given even the slightest bit, and it just it. It's, no one should take lightly telling somebody they're not a Christian. The only time somebody's even given the right is only on one occasion. You read this, is all over your New Testament. We've studied it many times. You deny Christ and what he's done and you can't associate yourself as a Christian. I can tell you that to your face if you deny him. But in no other circumstance am I given any kind of authority to tell you you are a Christian or you are not. That sounds like a desperate moralist to me. I don't want to be a desperate moralist. Peter says, I don't have to be a desperate moralist. Mullins and Wu have an article in Christianity Today, I highly recommend you read it, it came out this week. They talk about what happens when you start to do that, when you start picking certain moral things over other moral things. You develop a kind of a political gospel in the political world, and you develop a kind of a political denominationalism, and then your political commitments begin to define you instead of Christ. Do you see where it leads? It just does that slowly. It's, It's really slowly, but it happens. you think about your life as a christian i I think about mine it made me do this it made me do this Uh, when you first become a christian you wonder how many wrong viewpoints have you had over the course of your christian life that god's had to grab a hold of you by the back of the neck and say you can't think like that anymore big boy little girl you can't think like that anymore you can't do that anymore you can't treat people like that anymore how many, how many times did you believe something to be true and God had to come alongside and teach you something? That's not true. Wow. I, was gr- I grew up in that. One of the dearest people in my whole life was a racist. And even as a kid, because I grew up in a very multicultural communities, It didn't sit with me well. But I hear it. Then I became a Christian and I was a legalist for a little while because I was in this fundamental Baptist church. It made me, everything was wrong. You had to hold your head a certain way to breathe. It was ridiculous. And I bought into that for a little while and then all of a sudden, you come to learn freedom in Christ. Or maybe you were a misogynist. Who knows? All I know is God's got to come in your height and change it, but he doesn't do it all at once. Remember I told you about the new birth. Peter talked about the new birth that gives you your new identity. And when you when, when you got this new little bundle of life that comes into being, it's not full grown. He calls you an infant, and you just desire to grow. And, um, and we talked about, yeah, I have this new baby in our home, and that little baby is filled with potential. I look at this little child, and she's six months old now, and she's trying to walk a little bit. She's moving her legs like she knows they're supposed to move. They're supposed to hold her up and walk, but she doesn't have, have it all yet. And I look at her and go, do I go, you're not a real, you know, you're not a real human because you can't walk yet. <laughs> That's not what you say you go, "Oh, it's coming, baby. You know it's coming." How many how many times do you think God looks at us and go, oh, "They don't have it yet, but it's coming. It's coming. Soon they'll be walking." So let's say, let's just give the idea that you could vote wrong. Even if you did, would God not forgive that? Would God not eventually change your mind on something if it if he had to? Would you say you're out? What other sins can you be out on? I was doing some reading on immigration. Incredibly complicated issue. I was like, man, I feel like I'm reading a a high-level theology book. This is ridiculous. Unbelievable issues. But I I read some things that if they're true, and I I couldn't validate. But if they're true about some of the things that are happening to immigrants on our border, which we have, I mean, I don't know, 40,000, maybe more. That would be Nineveh-like. That would be Nineveh-like, and I couldn't support it. So on the one hand, I'm going to vote a color that makes me say I value life. And on the other hand, i got to live with that same color that devalues it in three other places. And God can't handle any of the devaluing of human beings. I don't want to drag God into any of those boxes. I take God with me when I go into the box. I don't put God in the box. This is why we accurately get accused from the other side or any side you're on, you get accused of evil. And rightly so. And those same people are going, saying what Mark Knoll, Christian, or not a Christian, but a historian, says, if you, if, you, if you take one of these sides and try to make it Christian over the other one, You end up with a very twisted view of God if you look at the whole thing. This is why it is important, I'm gonna insert this here because it relates to the topic. This is why you need to understand the inherent dangers of single-issue voting. Now let me give you a caveat. Most people single-issue vote. And the reason you're you're drawn to that is because no one side deals with all the other issues the way you would. So you grab a couple that you, you know are important. That's not wrong to do. So I'm not saying you can't have one or two moral issues that drive your vote. I'm not saying you can't do that. I'm just saying you need to understand the inherent problem, spiritually speaking, when you do that in the political arena, um, you ought to, well, I'm not going to tell you to do it. It took all I had to do it. Read British ethicist James Mumford. I'm not going to ask you to do that. But he talks about something called package deal ethics. Well, when you grab onto one moral issue and you come over to a side or a color and you hold that, you realize that you've got to lump yourself in with everything that's going on in that color. And it's very easy to overlook because you're so attached to one or two moral issues to overlook all the other ones and become exclusive. And that creates all kinds of things. It it creates, spiritually speaking, for the believer anyway, things that taste and sound like Pharisaism. You got to be careful. Doesn't mean you're not right on that issue. So when you buy into that side, you sort of take a kind of a bundle of ethics that somebody else could point at you and say, well, that's inconsistent. And then what ends up happening is you identify yourself with that, and then you start to overlook and excuse some of the other sins in the box that other people see as important. That's the problem with it. It's an inherent danger. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It's just the way you do it and the way you see yourself doing it and the way you see your party and the way you see people, you got to be really careful how it rains down on them. That's all I'm saying. So this pastor who said you can't be a real Christian if you don't vote Trump was sitting on a panel of people when he said it. One of the other panelists was asked this question. So does that mean you who are voting red Are choosing red because it's the lesser of two evils. And this fella said, The lesser of two evils issue is only a problem if both candidates would do evil if elected. And he said, Only one candidate. Will do evil. Do you hear that? That's what I'm talking about. You get blind to everything else evil if you imagine only one side does evil. That's the elitist, moralist approach. Mumford will go on to say, that creates in people an incoherent, an internal incoherency on morality, because once you take your morals as a Christian, once you take your morals as a Christian that you live with here, and you try to fit them up here in in a structure that just, you just can't fit it in completely, and you adopt one side, What you're going to do, you have to do, you got to base it on morals, but you got to be really careful that you don't become a person who doesn't see evil. It's part of the reason we can't have a conversation in our culture right now, because everyone's so evil that I can't even talk to you. I don't have any evil, you're the evil one, so we can't talk. And so that incoherence, he says, these political identities where the left and right is increasingly, he says, determining our moral decision-making. You can't let those colors determine your morality in the world. They can't be the determining factor. So he talks about this social-political level uh, in a way that makes left and right the most determinative markers of identity. What we have just done, and in the comments of those pastors, you've literally given us a red or blue color for all the human race, divided the righteous and the sinners to the degree that, how, how, do, you, how do you come together with the gospel? The political structure Mumford will say, is filled with contradictions like the immigration one I just said. I value life on one thing on this side and it gets devalued by something else somebody does. And the same thing happens on this side. We have to think better. Now, I'm going to close by giving you quick little statements based on what I said. Number one, you vote. You vote to keep your heart sensitive to what God's trying to do in the world. That's why you vote. You don't vote for any other reason. That's the reason you vote because God's ultimately in charge of everything. Everything. But I don't want to have a heart in America that starts hating groups and peoples to the degree that I can't love them and reach them. So you vote and you vote your convictions. But don't be self-righteous and don't play God. Never forget... The limits of politics and parties. They can never, ever encapsulate, incorporate all that you are called to be as a believer and all of God's purposes for the world. Can never do it. Third, don't forget your ultimate mission. Paul said, When I'm with you, I'm a servant because I'm trying to win people to Christ. And then I'm going to say what I've said before, and it'll rattle rattle you for a second, and then you'll be okay in a minute. Your life and your testimony matter more than your vote. Doesn't mean your vote doesn't matter, but your life and your testimony mean more. Now, if you came in here and you said, listen, I didn't come to church for politics. I didn't become a pastor to talk about them. I got to tell you, I, it's the most challenging thing I've ever done. But you say, and I, and I don't know who's sitting here, but I do want to say this and then I'll wrap this up and close. I don't know if you can sit here and say, maybe you say, uh, you know, I don't know if I can be everything this God wants me to be. You're talking about changing my heritage, you said earlier in the service, my values, my I'm supposed to become an exile uh, in the world, you know, just kind of a distance, never really make my home here. You're like, I don't know if I can do that. Well, here's what happened. Let me just say something to you. The only way you're going to become an exile like that is exactly what Peter says. When you are confronted with a love that's so overwhelming and it grabs a hold of your heart, it's amazing how, how fast you'll transform. It's amazing what things about you will change that you never thought could change. It's that love. Remember what First Peter 2.10 2, says? Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. And you're not a people because you were great people. You're a people because I had mercy on you. And when you feel that mercy and that love, it's like, oh my gosh, I'll be whatever you want. I'll, I'll trust you in any way I can. I want you to have say in every area of my life. What you'll be more amazed at is not that you can't live up to the standard. It's that God would even ask you to. You won't believe that. His love will transform you and empower you to be who you're supposed to be in this world. Let's pray. We love you, Father. We, uh, we're wrestling with these things. We long mostly, mostly to be what you've called us to be. Learning how to do that and learning how to do it here in this country is becoming more and more of a challenge for us and we admit our ignorance, we admit our arrogance and ask, are we thinking things, believing things, hoping things that are not things you want us to have? hope or believe in. We're open. We're open. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, there you go. Next week, we'll be back in 1 Peter, because I'm looking forward to now focusing on what what is our identity, and then how does that eventually lead into how we engage the world. So...